1: Hi, this is Steve Ray, and welcome to this week's edition of Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People on the Italian Wine Podcast. This week, I'm pleased to have as a guest Alison Napius, who is Wine spectator Senior Editor and Tasting Director and responsible for covering Italy, Champagne, Alsace, Spain, and South Africa. It's, uh, that's quite a remit, Allison. Welcome to the show. <laughs>
2: Thank you. Yes. Uh, Thanks for having me. And yeah, I mean, it keeps keeps it interesting. A lot of great
1: wines there. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So first question, I think, is the one on on everyone's mind, probably when they first meet you, is how did you get what seems to be the best job in the wine industry, certainly from a, a writer or journalist point of
2: view? Well, yes, I I do think it is. It's got to be one of the top jobs out there, in my opinion. I I meet very few people that I'm like, oh, I might want your job. I started off at Wine Spectator 22 years ago. I came in as the assistant tasting coordinator. So it was an entry-level position organizing the tastings for our New York office. So, you know, uh, requesting samples, handling all the paperwork and information, unpacking boxes, keeping the cellar organized, and setting up tastings. Um, so I started off there and, you know, kind of thought I would spend a few years really learning about wine from the pros and then go on to do something else. But what can I say? It was a great job and it continues to be a great job. And I kind of grew up with the company from there, eventually becoming a taster and taking on additional
1: responsibilities along the way. Well, cool, congratulations on that. I One of the things, I've been in the industry for 35 years and always wanted to get to the point where I wasn't the guy packing and shipping and schlepping bottles. I, I have not... Achieved that yet? (laughs) Even though I own my own company, I'm still doing it. Are you still doing the same too?
2: You know, I think that you never really, if you're in the wine industry, you never give it up completely. I do a lot less of it, but I I still um, have, you know, my favorite hand cart that I like to use when I'm at the office and we're moving stuff around. And so, yeah, you never completely get rid of moving wine bottles around.
1: Okay, so I guess that's no longer my objective. I just have to learn how to deal with it. Okay, so define your role and, and clarify. For me, the difference between taster versus editor, as it is at Wine Spectator? Sure. Or M. Schenken, I should probably say.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that probably most people hear editor and assume that you're actually editing um, copy in the magazine, which certainly I read through a lot of copy and make comments whenever I can. But I'm not the person doing the line item edits. You know, that's not my specialty so I think an editor at Wine Spectator is really contributing um, ideas and content to the magazine overall, and to the curation of the magazine. And then as a taster, and uh, you know, taste well as a taster. Obviously, you're tasting these wines, you're covering them for the magazine, which means reviewing any number of hundreds of wines. For example, Champagne or Italy every year. Writing articles regularly, kind of annual summaries, covering any news that comes up, and just really trying to stay on top of what's going on. In the region. So, you know, the, the two roles definitely overlap. And certainly, I think a, a, really a ton of our content from the magazine comes from our tastings. You know, with blind tastings, there's always a lot of surprises. Um, you take that bag off and it's like, wow, this is interesting. And then you go to see like, what has the winery done that all of a sudden this wine has had this change in style or, you know, it's really showing so well in the last couple of vintages And you find a story there sometimes.
1: Cool. Okay. Another kind of, uh, I'll just state the question straightforward. What's it like working for Marvin Schenken, Mind Spectator's publication of M. Schenken Publications, Marvin's a Legend in the Industry. What's it like?
2: Well, working for Marvin, I would say it's tough. You know, he is a tough boss and um, demanding and wants the best of everybody all the time. And and honestly, that's what you, you should have as a boss. But I've been amazed over the years at kind of his ability to pinpoint something and say, this is going to be a big success. And it's whether it's an idea or something, you know, an idea for a story, something new we're doing at the magazine. And and it is. And so he's a great sounding board in terms of curating content for the magazine And I think has a a strange finger on the pulse of the wine industry and and maybe what we sometimes don't even know that we want yet. So, um, you know, very interesting guy to work for, I would say. Yes.
1: Visionary. Okay. Yeah. Great. So this may be a presumptuous question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because I get asked this all the time as not just a a marketing consultant, but also having owned an advertising agency and spending money on advertising. What's the difference between the commercial side and editorial and do advertising dollars influence coverage in the magazine?
2: There it is. It's really church and state. You know, I see and and know who are advertisers in the magazine, but do I know how much money they're spending? No. Is there is there influence for me to write about them, know, you know, again, it really comes back to our blind tastings. And that's who we're going to highlight the people who are really showing well in those tastings. You know, I guess if I uh, am aware somebody's an advertiser, and you have 10 people who are all doing the same thing at the same level, you know, would I maybe favor them? Possibly. And maybe there's some unconscious bias there, but there's certainly no um, direct directive to do so
1: yeah and there there, there was no accusation there it's it's a, a function of i get asked that a lot my answer is the same certainly for wine spectator i can't say that for any other publication but my experience has been there isn't why do you think people believe that and it's it's continued i mean this is my whole career people have saying, nah it's just only if you advertise you you know you get coverage Why is that?
2: I mean, I think they believe it because there are a lot of places in the world, not not just in wine journalism, but where you pay for spots. You know, there's a lot of pay-for-play in a lot of circumstances. So it it happens. It happens everywhere. It just, you know, doesn't happen with us at Wine Spectator, and we we let our tastings guide us instead.
1: Another significant personality in in the industry that – you've worked with and have had contact with is uh, the publisher of this podcast, Stevie Kim, who, among many other things, manages uh, Vin Italy, but she's also created a number of um, wine um, enterprises, uh, one of which you guys have been deeply involved in, and that's Opera Wine. Can you tell me a little bit of the background on that and how that happened? And I would just add one comment, because I remember when Stevie first told me about it, it was October, and she said, yeah, we're going to do it for Vin Italy this year. And I said, there's no way, you're going to get all that put together in like two and a half months with Christmas in between. How did that
2: happen? Well, I will tell you um, the, the story goes that, you know, I think I don't know if it was first Stevie or if it was first Marilisa. But anyhow, Stevie arranges for Tom Matthews to have a dinner with Marilisa Allegrini and with Stevie. And who else was there? Maybe Giovanni Montavani. I, I forget exactly who was there, but it was that per se. Tom was like, I'll go for an hour, meet these people, you know, and it turned into this fascinating discussion of, and that was where Opera
1: Wine was born. Really? Okay, cool. I didn't know that.
2: So basically, you know, yeah, it was this idea, get the 100 best wineries, kind of lean on tastings as a, a way to identify them, but also look at historical significance and try to grow a relationship with some of Italy's top producers while highlighting them, which As you said, I think for both of those, it's been hugely successful. We couldn't be more pleased with Opera Wine. And it's really become a signature event of Italy. you know, kicking off the fair each year. We're expanding it a little bit this year from around 100 producers each year to 130. We're in a larger space. Okay. Oh, good. Which is great because it just gives us an opportunity to showcase Italian wine and all its beauty and diversity even more. So.
1: so for uh, people who haven't had um, the, the luxury of uh, participating or, or attending opera wine, it usually takes place the day before the formal opening of in Italy. You got a hundred of the, the best wineries, winemakers, wines and it's it's like almost uh, old home week. All of us have had contact with a lot of those wineries over the years either as importers or as writers or as consultants or as just consumers. Um, and it's pretty spectacular. Going to a bigger space, I think, is going to help a lot because it it did get a little crowded. It has been getting a little crowded. Okay. One of the subjects that we've been talking about in preparation for this interview was was the concept of, or the subject of wine jargon and these esoteric descriptors and how that came about, less interested in that so much, how it's evolved. I am interested in that. And where do you think it's going? And under the guy, under the kind of the heading of wine is not for me, or there's a club that has a language that I don't speak, that it's intimidating for a lot of people. And I don't think that's the general reason why people do this. But yet descriptors in Wine Spectator tend to use words that a lot of people don't use in daily life. So, can you comment on that?
2: Sure. Well, I think you know I, I sent you a sampling of my tasting notes. I think mine are fairly straightforward. Um, to me, the important things to talk about in a wine are its body, some of the primary flavors, acidity, tannins, kind of structural components, and an overall impression of the wine. And I try to do that in a fairly straightforward way. But certainly, you know, we're all 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 tasters are occasionally get a little waxing poetic, I would say. I I would say that how it's evolved, you know, I think back to starting in the industry and reading Wine Spectator in the 90s prior to that. And I think we could say that the conversation around wine overall has become less elitist and is opening its arms and letting more people in. And I think that there has been a change to tasting notes over time, um, possibly because there are less, you know, in 2000, it was a very small group of wine critics that people were looking to for scores and notes. And and nowadays, there are many people at, you know, some on very small platforms into smaller audiences and some larger, um, but you're getting a lot of voices in there. And, you know, at the same time, I think that, yeah, it gets a little too much sometimes. Um, it can be kind of bombastic, you feel like. But I also think, you need something because you're, you're, you know, otherwise I could do tasting notes for 15 Sangiovese right now and say, red and black cherry, underlying earth notes, citrus, spice, and herb. And it would be, it could be the same note. And that note would probably be true of all 15 of them. But at some point you need to differentiate them. Otherwise we're not giving any service to the people who are reading the tasting notes.
1: Okay. And so I think that's it. So the, the, the the issue in my mind is, People who read Wine Spectator are, by definition, very interested in wine towards the geeky side, for lack of a better word. Whereas most consumers, like the people who maybe come over to my house and I pull something out of my cellar and I ask them, you know, would you like me to tell you about the wine? And the answer always comes back, no. (laughs) We just want to drink it and this tastes good or, you know, using something very similar. So there's this disconnect between the formal tasting notes and the challenges to the writer to... Be simple, specific, and different to differentiate between all those Sangioveses, and yet speak in a language that resonates with your audience. And that's, I don't think there's an answer to that. I think that's just a challenge that we, we all face in writing about wine.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a challenge. I would say the challenge is, as writers of Tasting Notes, to move it towards something that's mainstream, but will still allow you to get that differentiation But I think it's also about taking even your novice wine drinker and helping to move them along, you know, and a really practical application of that is I always like people say that they don't want to go ask people in stores for recommendations. They don't know anything about wine. And I say, even if you can give them two words, I like fruity wines with um, I had one that had, you know, tasted like raspberries to me that might that's gonna help the sales clerk help you find a wine that you might actually be interested in drinking again. And you know it's like a kind of an evolution. You start talking and you give those two words and the next time it's three or four words and all of a sudden you're writing your own tasting notes. So it's about developing vocabulary in both ways that um, helps us all understand it, I think. Okay, in contrast to that,
1: um, I've done some research on this over the years and I've come to the conclusion that in, in stores, uh, people want to know two things. What does the wine taste like in words that I understand and can relate to? And second, is it going to go with dinner tonight? And my answer to the second question is always yes. <laughs> <laughs> because I find this whole issue about wine, personally, about wine pairing is I, I enjoy a whole lot of mishmash combinations that a lot of people might not, but I, it's not so much the two going together than it is The enjoyment of the wine itself, but in any case, um, but it goes to an extreme, like sautéed gooseberries and things like. But that's not words that people understand. So, can you comment on that?
2: I mean, you know, I I think I have already. I I think that um, I I agree with you. Sautéed gooseberries doesn't mean much to me either. You know, I think it's a that's a challenge for the taster to come up with something that's relatable. You know, and I remember a specific instance where we had kind of a a more junior taster had only been tasting for a year or two and his tasting notes said something like, reminds me of my grandmother's kitchen when she was baking. And we said, okay, well, nobody else knows what that is. And so he changed it to something warm baking spices and pastry. And it's like, okay, people can understand what that means. But yeah, you have to find uh, something that people can latch on to, even if it's you know, not as uh, specific as you might want to make
1: it. Yeah, actually, that's kind of interesting. And I think when you when someone makes a personal note like that, it's because they don't necessarily have the words to describe it. But that captures it's a smell, right? It's it's something that's the interesting thing about smell. We you know, it, it's evocative. Yeah, it kind of defies description. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Back to um, Wine Spectator and where the world is going in terms of communications and print media versus online media. You guys have Winespectator.com and have done for 20 over 20 years, I think. I know. Tell us where Winespectator.com is going and Wine Spectator, the magazine, is going. And are they differing?
2: I think they're complementary, but they are different.
0: Italian Wine Podcast. If you think you love wine as much as we do, then give us a like and a follow anywhere you get your pods.
2: I think there are still a number of people who are either print-only subscribers or online-only subscribers, and then a nice chunk of people who you know subscribe to both. I feel like the articles that we have in the print edition are maybe geared a little bit more, you know, we're always writing for novices, but we're also trying to dig into these regions that we're covering in a way that's going to give something meaningful to serious wine lovers, you know, in terms of advice, how the wines are drinking, what the vintages are like, what you should be buying, et cetera. Uh, And all of the print content ultimately goes online as well. But online we're you know, like basically you have great flexibility, you're not set to a print schedule. So that's where we get the news coverage, where we're trying to be more timely about giving information to wine lovers. And then I would say there's also a very serious part of the website dedicated to learning about wine. So Wine Basics, Wine 101, and in lots of different formats, you know, fun quizzes people can take, videos, there's a whole section on grapes that break down, you know, every major and many minor grapes by what it tastes like, where it's grown, what it's labeled under, et cetera. So, you know, I think that it's the idea to me is a little bit, you come to winespectator.com because there's free content there as well as paid content behind um, the subscription wall. But you come there and you can learn about wine. And, you know, maybe we, we capture your attention and maybe we then get you to eventually subscribe to the magazine or subscribe to the online content that you weren't able to reach before. So I think it's just I would say that the beauty of the digital side of it is the great flexibility that we have in the ways that we can cover wine and maybe have a little bit more fun with it than we do in the print edition, which needs to be beautiful, needs to be well thought out and, and you know, something that our long term subscribers are going to recognize and enjoy.
1: Right. And I think the printing is very much an experience thing. The size of the magazine itself, the photography that's in there, the, the printing quality, all contributes to a different experience in long form writing. Online, I think we're all kind of attuned to shorter stuff or, you know, bits and bytes. And then the opportunity, if there's something that interests you, then you can go deeper in this resource without having to go somewhere else like a library or consult, you know, um, Oxford Companion or, or some of these other uh, books that a lot of people probably aren't going to have. Well, a follow-up to that in terms of how they read Wine Spectator versus Spectator.com, how do you think these descriptions and, and the way wine is communicated affects people who are shopping in stores? You made the point that, you know, some people are hesitant to ask somebody in a store we in the industry like to say the best thing you can do is ask somebody in the store because then they can get into this conversation with you and tease out what it is that you like or are looking for what you're tasting. And then always come, I mean, I've never been at a loss for coming up with a recommendation for something. Oh, then I think this would be perfect for you, just in kind of the way we work. So how is that changing in a world where wine searcher is and label recognition technology is common in Vivino and wine searcher and so forth? So there's a lot more information available than there ever was before.
2: Well, I mean, I think, you know, I have several people off the top of my head, friends of mine that I think of who the first thing they do when they see a bottle of wine that either that they're tasting and they like, or they're in the store and they're considering is pull up their apps, whether it's to look up the Tasty Note on Wine Spectators, Wine Ratings Plus app, to use Vino, uh, Wine Searcher, et cetera, and to find out more about it. So I think that's great. I mean, I think it's great that people are looking Beyond, for example, just a score, and and are looking for the information about the wine, um, and and really trying to understand what they're going to be drinking. You know, I, I, I still am a I with you. I hugely advocate for people to talk to the retailers. I mean, that is what they get excited about, and they're like they know what's in their store. So you're they're the experts on what's in there more so than any app you could look at. So it's definitely, I would I would definitely advocate for the dialogue as well. But I think it's great to have all the resources and tools that we do now and for people to find the one that kind of fits with the way they digest information and to keep going back to that.
1: Okay. Well, uh, a corollary to that one is uh, let's flip over to on-premise. And as on-premise comes back, um, what's the role of the SOM? I mean, A lot of people lost their jobs. A lot of people changed their jobs. The, the job itself changed To less of a SOM and more of an F&B director, money management and that kind of stuff. What's your point of view on um, where is the role of SOM going?
2: Well, I mean, I think, you know, right now, even pre-COVID, we saw, you know, wine lists for the most part becoming more concise, um, people keeping less inventory, that sort of thing um and i would say in the last year one of the big challenges for wine directors for sommeliers has been managing inventory and keeping things in stock you know i can think of a few different circumstances in the last 6 months where i went to order something and we had to go through one not one not two but finally to the third option before we you know got a bottle that they actually had in their cellar and these are restaurants that were updating their lists, obviously not daily, but regularly. Um, so there's been challenges there too, additional challenges to curating wine lists, I would say, and and serving the guests. But I think in the long term, um, people are still going to look to the wine directors and sommeliers for advice, or else there are people who don't want the advice and they just want to order what they order. And I think that that's um, one of the great things about a, a good sommelier is that they They can kind of gauge their guests and and get a feeling for, you know, when they can get in there and maybe give some other options. Um, And I think it also varies from market to market. You know, I've I've talked to a lot of people in, um, if you think about like Chicago, San Francisco, New York, these are oftentimes very sophisticated wine drinkers coming into restaurants and and they know what they want and they're going for it. But, you know, places like Houston or uh, where I spend part of my time in Tampa, Florida, other cities that are not the main ones and they don't always get the the allocations that maybe those first wine loving cities would they have guests who are much more open to a wider variety of wine and they go in you know to a restaurant they've been to before a wine director sommelier that gave them a great recommendation say hey you gave me a great pick last time what do you have for me this time like this is what we're eating what do you think would be good and and they can help them with that so yeah,
1: that should be their specialty to, to know what pairs with the cuisine that the, the meals that they're serving.
2: So I think there will still be a place for that.
1: OK, thank you for that. You had slipped one word in there that I left out in my questionnaire, but uh, it's important and it's scores, but I want to talk about it from the trade perspective. What, what I find in most of my consulting is helping brands who want to come into the U.S. market be there for the first time. I'm going to ask a question about that in a moment. But the first question I get asked by any gatekeeper, whether it's an importer, distributor, retailer, on-premise operator, some, anybody in the business, is do you have scores? And I think the reason why they ask this is because they get you know, maybe 100 unsolicited calls a week of saying, hey, I've got a really great wine I want to sell you. And they're looking for a way to politely say no. And the first question is, do you have scores? And that's an easy way to separate the wheat from the chaff. That if you don't have scores, then that presupposes a basic lack of understanding about how the U.S. market works. Not from the consumer side, just from the trade side that you know, I'm going to need a number because that's the way my customers Shop. Can you comment on uh, the role of scores, trade side?
2: Well, I mean, you know, I've, I've never worked directly with trade that way. So, I, I mean, I I would generally say that it's a matter of information and it is just human nature to take information and to use it to, you know, decision tree out. And as you said, it's like, OK, if there's not scores, that's a starting point for and you know, if you have a hundred calls a week, you, you have to find something. So I think it's unfortunate that that means there's probably some wineries that don't get the um, attention that they might deserve. But at the same time, I can also see that if, you know, you're looking as, as a person who's very busy and wants to find something good for your list, but it's it's nice to have somebody who's already done a little bit of, you know, some of that work for you because you, you don't have the time to sit down and taste a hundred, Different wineries, five wines each, you know. But there are critics who that's what their job is. So it's a balancing act, I would say.
1: I, I would also add the comment that scores are really a proxy for what should be talked about, which is the story. So you know, to the trade, what they're interested in is, you know, what's the price, what's the margin, how is this going to help me grow my business. They're less interested when deciding which wines to take in. They're less interested in the story itself because it's not relevant at that point of the conversation. It will become so. But once they've made the decision to bring it in, how are we going to market and how are we going to sell it? And I think you know, one of my concerns is that scores—it's a proxy, but it also kind of dumbs down everything and is not a good proxy for a description of of the wine. My point of view. Okay, so flipping that around, what advice do you have for wineries, say Italian wineries, who are wanting to come to the U.S. market with either you know the next. Uh, Zibibo or the next uh, Saint-Gervais or you know, something that's new or something that's old that's in a competitive category. Do you get asked that question how, how, by wineries? How can I come to the U.S. market?
2: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And in fact, I remember my very first in Italy, I think this was 2012, um, I was on a panel and, and actually someone took that question and said, well, should we be making our wine for the American palate? And I said, no, absolutely not. You know, the beauty of Italian wine is that it's so distinctive and and has um, so many unique examples. But so, I mean, I think the thing that... You know, if you live in Italy, although actually like, you know, when you're in Tuscany, you open up most wine lists and it's all Tuscan wines, although it's getting better and you sometimes see other examples. But when you live in Italy, you you understand wine in a way that most Americans don't. Um, You know, wine is part of the culture. And so as an Italian winery, I would say the first thing to remember is that you are an educator and you're not an educator just about your own winery. You are educating and being an ambassador for your grape variety, for your your appellation, for your region, for the country overall. Um, and you know the example that I always give is that when Robert Mondavi really got going, he was talking about Robert Mondavi Winery, but he was more talking about Napa Valley and talking about California. And he was an ambassador going out there in the world and educating people about the wines of his region. And I think that there needs to be more of this, uh, you know, approach of promoting areas as a whole, and then dialing in on specifically what you're doing at your winery, than, than trying to start them on Sagrantino. You know, it needs to first of all be about Umbria, and then it needs to be at montefalco and then it needs to be about Sagrantino and your winery. So.
1: Yeah. But even that, I think the challenge uh, is there's so many indigenous varietals in Italy, and there are so many different regions. It's impossible as, as, I mean, I study it, you study it, I have a map that I refer to on my wall all the time, and I am barely scratching the surface on understanding Italian wines and regions.
2: I mean, it's amazing when you talk to people, the, the level of detail that some, I mean, there's people who decide to only focus on, you know, one thing on Cru Barolo and, and they really get to know like where the parcels are in each crew and who owns them. And that level of detail, I don't have, you know, I have a more kind of global approach to the wines of Italy. So there's an incredible amount of information out there and, and you need to, as an Italian winery as I said, be an ambassador for these larger considerations, but also to gauge your audience and, and see who you're talking to. But that's probably true of any good um, presentation.
1: Okay. So the final question I like to ask guests is um, what's the big takeaway from this conversation? Is, you know, when I started out in journalism, Uh, An editor once told me, he said, Steve, we we do wrench stories. And I said, it was agriculture. And I said, what do you mean? He says, somebody could read the article. They can go out and fix the tractor. Um, So of what we just talked about here is what is a practical thing a listener can have heard and then put to use immediately?
2: Um, I would say to really think about communication, um, which I think has become hugely and increasingly important, um, as we've all had such a challenging time in the last two years, not seeing each other in person. And, and think about your messaging. You know, I, you there are many wineries that make amazing wine that are little known or little written about and, 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 you know, not enjoyed in the U.S. because they're not sold here. They're not sold widely here. So it, there is a lot around communication. And that's uh, communication to people like me who are journalists writing about wine, to the people who are selling the wine—the distributors, the retailers, the sommeliers—and um, and even within your own company, how you talk about the wines and and just con constantly practicing it. And and I will say that I can think of a number of I would say smaller wineries from less known regions. And I, and I remember one very specifically. He said, you know, I just I would practice over and over again kind of how I wanted to explain my mind so that it was just second nature to me anytime that somebody asks about them. And he said and and he had it down pat like, you know, this is my region, this is how it is here. You know, like that he he literally he said, "Oh, I'd be out, you know, pruning in the vineyard and I'd just be speaking to myself and I'd practice it first in Italian and then I'd practice it in English." And and that's the kind of approach that I think People need to take more and more.
1: There's almost, well, now we call it elevator speech to like VCs, but it's, it's something similar in that you're trying to condense everything down, but in a meaningful way that's relatively short. One point I wanted to make, a lot of people may not know, you're a Cornellian, I'm a Cornellian. We both kind of had similar training background there. So it's just a shout out to Cornell for a great preparation. Go Big Red. <laughs> if people want to reach out to you, um, what, what is the best way to contact you?
2: Well, I, I mean, I would say that an easy way to reach out to me is through Instagram. You can direct message me. My Instagram handle is at napjuswine, N-A-P-J-U-S-W-I-N-E. We also, if you're interested in submitting samples to Wine Spectator, we have a team of tasting coordinators who do like are constantly in, you know, in contact and talking to people. So there's an email address for that. It's NYTastings at com. So N-Y-T-A-S-T-I-N-G at Um So you could just email with expressing your interest. And then we give you more information about how we handle our tastings and what you need to do to submit samples.
1: Okay. So a question I had, I've always understood that uh, you guys only review wines that actually already are for sale in the U.S. as opposed to those that are not. That's true. Um,
2: It is very, very rare for us to agree to taste something that is not available in the U.S. And I would say it's almost always in the situation where maybe it's a producer, we're already covering some of their wines, and for purposes of a story or something, we might uh, cover a wine that is not always here in the U.S. But yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I would love to do more exploring um, and 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 have that opportunity. But we we really the world of wine is just huge and it's expanding all the time. So we have to um, you know really focus our our coverage and. As you said, like you have to cut things off somewhere, and a starting point for us is the
1: wines are available in the U.S. Cool. Okay. Um, my guest this week is Alison Napius. She's the uh, Senior Editor and Tasting Director at Wine Spectator covering Italy, who obviously is a subject of interest here, but uh, also Champagne, Alsace, Spain, and South Africa. Thank you for being a guest, Allison. It's been an enjoyable conversation and enlightening. A lot of us, I think, uh, think about Wine Spectator in a certain way, and it's more than just one thing, and it's something that's evolving when we think about print as well as online. So thank you for your time. Yeah, Absolutely. Thank you for the conversation today. It's been great. Okay. And thanks to the audience for listening, and tune in next week. We'll have another interesting conversation on Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People on the Italian Wine Podcast. This is Steve Ray. Thank you for listening.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Italian Wine Podcast, brought to you by Vinitali Academy, home of the gold standard of Italian wine education. Do you want to be the next ambassador? Apply online at International.com for courses in London, Austria, and Hong Kong, the 27th to the 29th of July. Remember to subscribe and like Italian Wine Podcast and catch us on SoundCloud, Spotify, and wherever you get your pods. You can also find our entire back catalog of episodes at italianwinepodcast.com.